0: Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, the Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 21, The Tour Part 1. Recorded here while my kids are at camp. And I'm on a holiday on July 5th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. Let's start with a continued thank you to Christoph Oakes of Snail. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Hummingbird. And our outro is Sacrifice to the Inhuman Creature. Guys, this is a huge chapter where we get world building, backstories, new characters, dinosaurs, all the zany cloning science, foreshadowing, Chekhov's gun, character development, plotting, oh, and it's like 20 pages long. There is a lot to get to and that's because this chapter is awesome. That also means I'm going to break it into three episodes, so please join me in this three-part mini (laughs) series. This being the tour, part one. Let's uh, move on to our corrections here. So, I said that the Sierra Dactylus lifted Lex off the ground in episode 16 Malcolm, in my interview with Dr. David Hone, but that doesn't happen in the novel, or rather, in the film, Jurassic Park 3. It doesn't grab Lex, he grabs other people. Uh, They grab Lex's hair, they draw blood from her head, they tear Grant's shirt, they poop streaks over the backs of the, the characters, and one grabs Lex by the shoulders and tries to take off, but she is too heavy, while it jabs at her with its pointed jaw. And then they all steal her baseball glove, but they do not lift her off the ground, so I was wrong about that. I guess, sorry not sorry about this next one, I'm continuing not to use the Oxford comma. Sometimes it's funny when people don't use it, and I like that. I don't want to live in a world where the Oxford comma jokes aren't a thing. And apparently, just as a tribunal requires that there actually only be three people on it, hence the name Tribunal, uh, you cannot have a duel between more than two people. I didn't know that, so I'm sorry. In Dinosaur News, while discovered in 1993 in the Spanish Barremian fossil deposit of Las Hoyas and becoming the first ornithomimosaur described in Europe, it wasn't until 2021 that the holotype of Pelicanomimus polydont was ever given a detailed description. Almost 25 years later, the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society rewarded our patients with Pelicanomimus postcranial anatomy and the evolution of the specialized manus in ornithomimosaurs and sternum in maniraptoriforms. forms. Pelicanomimus would have had a superficial resemblance to common ostriches where they were omnivorous or herbivorous and are known from the early or late Cretaceous, though the Pelicanomimus itself is known from the Barremian or the early Cretaceous, and uh, they are expected to be the fastest of all dinosaurs. They were likely all feathered and are known from Laurasia or the northern hemisphere uh, and probably Africa and Australia. In this particular animal was about eight feet long and its name means... The pelican mimic with many teeth. They had small skulls, large eyes, relatively long, slender necks, and this would have this one had teeth, though more derived members would have had toothless beaks. Their forelimbs were long and slender, with powerful claws, and their hind limbs were long, powerful, and had a long foot and short toes, which kind of terminated in hoof-like claws. The holotype LH7777, housed in the Las Hoyas collection at the Museo de Cuenca, was uncovered from the... Calizas de la Huerguina Formation. It's comprised of a skull, lower jaws, neck vertebrae, back vertebrae, ribs, sternum, pectoral girdle, a right forelimb, and some left forelimb. The new report provides a revised and more accurate osteological description of the postcranial skeleton, comparing the new measurements to information about ornithomimosaurs. And it's led to the naming of a new clade, the macrochyroforms, where Pelicanomimus and other more derived ornithomimosaurs with enlarged manual elements like a long metacarpal 1 and elongated distal phalanges, are now found. Pelicanomimus also has ossified sternal plates, which is unique among ornithomimosaurs, though common among maniraptorin species, making this the first evidence of such sternal plates in Cholurosauria, making this a convergent adaptation. The authors argue that the character combination in an early diverging ornithomimosaur like pelicanomimus found in this analysis proves as a key step in the evolution of the manis and pectoral girdle in Ornithomimosaurians. My second article is actually something that came out recently for a change. In the July 2022 edition of Science Advances, they published a new article that was widely reported on called Arctic Ice and the Ecological Rise of the Dinosaurs. Samples of rock from the Jungar Basin of northwestern China, with a paleo-altitude of approximately 71 degrees north, sampled from the late Triassic and early Jurassic period, indicates that, quote, freezing winter temperatures typified the forested Arctic, despite a persistence of extremely high levels of atmospheric pCO2, which stands for partial pressure of CO2. Quote, phylogenetic bracket analysis shows that non-avian dinosaurs were primitively insulated, enabling them to access rich, deciduous, and evergreen arctic vegetation even under freezing winter conditions, says the paper. In this period between the late Triassic and early Jurassic, there was intense volcanic winters associated with massive eruptions and lowered light levels, which resulted in the end-Triassic mass extinction around 201.6 million years ago on land, quote, decimating all medium to large-sized non-dinosaurian, non-insulated continental reptiles. It's all like stuff like crocodiles and things like that. They killed a lot of weird things. (laughs) That late Triassic was nuts. However, contrary to those who went extinct, quote, insulated dinosaurs, those on these northern latitudes, with access to Arctic vegetation for example, were already well adapted to cold temperatures, and not only survived, but also underwent rapid adaptive radiation and ecological expansion in the Jurassic taking over regions formerly dominated by non-insulated reptiles. Take that crocodiles. A theory as to why these Arctic insulated non-avian dinosaurs survived the Triassic extinction includes that they may have had plumage, or some sort of feather-like covering to help their survival. Some researchers have suggested the last common ancestor of dinosaurs, and pterosaurs had some form of feathery coat more than 243 million years ago, meaning these dinosaurs may have been covered in feather-like structures that kept them warm during the extinction event. Reportedly, there is no direct evidence of feathers yet among Triassic dinosaurs, but this remains a theory supported by phylogenetic analysis. Alright, with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. My guest today is a paleontological consultant for the oil industry and for documentaries, and is a honorary research associate at the University of Bristol, where he's investigating the evolution of how do we pronounce this? Is it French like chalicerats or is it chiliserates or how do we pronounce that? Chilicerates. Chiliserates, alright. And he's also a self-employed biostratigrapher in the oil industry. It's Dave Marshall. Hello. After- <laughs> Welcome aboard, yeah. We met after a Boy Scouting mishap that led to my team's raft floating into the open ocean and becoming lost, and our crew desperately baked beneath the endless sun, and the foul stench of death fell upon us, and we noticed that it smelled like hamburgers, and we discovered that there was a nearby Krusty Burger on an offshore oil rig, and so we climbed up and ordered 700 Krusty Burgers, and we were served by one happy Krusty Burger franchisee, David Marshall. And you saved my life that day, so thank you very much, Dave.
1: That that wasn't... that didn't... <laughs> I, I was... Not working at the Krusty Burger.
0: And the offshore. I was the one on the raft. You were on the raft. You were flipping flipping Krabby Patties. Very. Got it the wrong way. I was so hungry that day, that must have been it. (laughs)
1: Classic (laughs) Ryan.
0: uh, So I don't. I'm unfamiliar with the. I can't even remember how you pronounce it. The Chalicerets. 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 Which is uh, a tough word. How does that etymologically break down? Like, I get the horn part. Is that what is in there? I don't know. You know? Okay. Um. Honestly, I
1: don't know where the word came from. <laughs> it, well, it, it, it's, it's from Chalicerae, mm-hmm. which are the uh, the mouth appendages of chelicerates. And you'll know chelicerates. Mm-hmm. You're, you say you're unfamiliar with them, but you're actually very familiar with them. Mm-hmm. So that would be things like spiders and scorpions and mites and ticks and... Not ticks. Yes, ticks. Mites and ticks and... Various things like that.
0: And you get to work on the evolution of, of these things. I have I was gonna show you but we didn't have the uh, the video going. I, I have a, a Eurypterid that I made like I have a craft of it from when I must have been like six. And I was gonna show you but we don't even got a video going. But uh well, we could have had video if you Well it's all right. <laughs> uh, people don't need to see me. <laughs>
1: But nonetheless... I like, I like the mystery. Yes. Like, being, being on, on, a, on a podcast and nobody knowing what I actually look like. I could look like anything. Mm-hmm. Anyone.
0: It's, a, it's like reading a novel where like. you you imagine, uh, I guess, what you expect. And, and <laughs> when you see yeah. it in film, it you can only be... uh, you, It's very very narrow band of what the, the possibilities could be well, when you're reading. It could be whatever your imagination is. It's pretty good.
1: Yeah. On, on social media, if you can draw us
0: both... Mm-hmm.
1: I w- I'd like to see that audience what have you got what do we look like
0: <laughs> well I think for in terms of my audience I, they all know who I am I think it's <laughs> just a couple right, of well, what do I look like a couple buds from college is about who listens <laughs> um, but anyway the is <laughs> the so we're talking about uh, I was looking into it it's a little bit it's like arthropods you're saying it's spiders and scorpions and all kinds of neat stuff what are some of the extinct species that um, you that you find in the paleontological record that we don't have anymore. Okay,
1: so there's there's loads, of course, yeah. and the things that are the, the biggest groups that we don't have anymore would be the more aquatic ones. Mm-hmm. So these are what we would typically call meristomes, and the only surviving one of them is the horseshoe crab, Limulus polyphemus, mm-hmm. and its buddies. So those, there's just four species of those alive today. Uh, there used to be absolutely loads of them, and then also other kinds of meristems. So, you had the Eurypterid sea scorpions, you had Sinsifasurans, uh, which are sort of like horseshoe crabs, sort of like Eurypterids, and Chasmataspidids, which are sort of like Eurypterids, but with <laughs> a little protective body shieldy thing on them. So, there's a lot of weird things but they're all kind of like horseshoe crabby in general but then you get the Eurypterids and they can get really interesting in their ecologies and in their size what they were doing and how important they were for the paleozoic ecosystems so back in uh, like between the Ordovician and Silurian these would have been the top predators I'm pretty sure and they could get huge. Uh, the biggest one's actually, I think, in the Devonian, and that's um, eight foot, I think it is. Really? Uh, yeah, it's big. It's big. That's it's gorgeous. Big. And they, they had... Uh, we were talking about the chelicery before, their, their teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are, are two-segmented appendages. So imagine a just an extra leg. <laughs> um, and what they do is, is they grow... Uh, a spur out of the first appendage, and this acts as kind of like a one side of the tooth. Uh, And then the second appendage, which comes after that, grows long and occludes against the spur on the first appendage. So it's kind of like teeth like chopsticks apart from one of them's fixed and one of them's movable. So you have a fixed tooth and you have a, a free tooth. And these can get, for, for what's essentially a leg with two segments, it's absolutely tiny. These can get pretty intense. So for something like a pterygotid Eurypterid, which is one of these biggest predatory ones, uh, these two teeth can get absolutely filled with other teeth and they get held out on these giant arms like right in front of the the head of it so it's like extendo teeth which uh, is wonderful their ecologies and what they can do with their bodies and what they have done in the fossil record and yeah i just i just love them to bits
0: they sound horrifying
1: they are (laughs) and that's why i like them
0: (laughs) No kidding. Um, and so, when you study, I guess, the evolution of these things, so we have existing arthropods like uh, scorpions and things like that. Obviously, the horseshoe crab that you were mentioning. Um, but studying their evolution, like, do we, w- w- I guess, surprises are found in that area? Well, yes. I mean, you could say that about any group <laughs>
1: in the fossil record that's also alive today, uh, comparing what you had in the past to what you have alive today and and a really interesting thing about it all is that it's all still in flux like we think we have an idea about the characters that define each of the group what defines the sea scorpions from the horseshoe crabs from the sins of assurance and a lot of it is down to the number of segments that are superficially visible uh, on the animal but then something will come up and it all just changes again or you will get a phylogenetic analysis that compares all of the different uh, characteristics of these animals and it produces a mathematical hypothesis of what their relationships are and that will throw up something and it'll say oh this this species here that that probably doesn't belong to this family but to this other one Mm -hmm. and then the trickle down implications of all of that always keeps on changing and keeps on delivering new and exciting possibilities and hypotheses about how they evolved and when and where from and what kind of ecologies came first and it's it's so wonderful to have insight into that and see, be on the front line of all these changes and mm-hmm. see how our understanding of these animals that nobody knows about mm-hmm. and how our understanding changes all the time, through time. Yeah. And it's just a great subject to be involved with.
0: I, I have to wonder, I got, I guess two questions that, that kind of are related to this. Like, it sounds like they these would exist in the fossil record if i mean if they they exist presently they they must be in the fossil record for for hundreds of millions of years how old are they and and do you study them like like all through through all deep time or is it just like are they specifically mostly found in like uh what age rocks are you finding these things in
1: so the the eruptorids and the casmetaspidids and the sins which are the main groups that i study Mm -hmm. would be around from the the early paleozoic up until uh, probably the end permian mass extinction okay. where everything pretty much died mm-hmm. and each different group has the different ranges each different family within that group has different ranges and so does each genus and species it depends at which level you look at it uh, the horseshoe crabs though they were around in the the cambrian and they Persisted up until today. So you can look at them throughout the whole history of life on Earth after the Cambrian explosion. But if you're just looking at the Eurypterids, which I do mostly, they turned up in the middle Ordovician, I think it was. And mm-hmm. we've just found the very last one in like the last few months, which would be nestled right up to the Permo Triassic mass extinction event. So, essentially, they're about throughout the whole uh, Paleozoic era.
0: Okay. Interesting Before stuff. dinosaurs. Before, yeah. And then they, they kind of they got pretty quiet at <laughs> the, the beginning of the Triassic, did they? Yeah,
1: they they were gone by mm. then, unfortunately. They they had a big decline ever, ever since these pesky vertebrates evolved jaws mm. <laughs> at some point in the Silurian Devonian, and they really started taking off and getting yeah, all these fish and placoderms like becoming the top predators uh the sea scorpions kind of uh they weren't able to compete in the open oceans and they got pushed more and more to fresh water or at least the ones in the fresh water were able to survive because mm-hmm. they weren't having all of that competition in the seas and stuff so yeah they they essentially trickled out with a whimper until in the Permian you get essentially what's like a a a giant Roomba just walking (laughs) up and down the river floors sweeping up whatever it can and that is whilst it was big and impressive it was rather dumpy and not quite as exciting as the hyper-aggressive ones that we had in the Ordovician and Silurian.
0: yeah those extinctions all uh... They'll slow people down, don't they?
1: (laughs) They do. They they slowed uh, 95% of life down.
0: Every time, those damn extinctions. But you know, pretty much, horseshoe crabs got through pretty much all of them. Yeah, it's neat. It's crazy stuff. It's amazing, like, extinctions blow, but what does survive gets to have... They they diversify and they spread like fireworks. Like, they just... and they're everywhere, and they do amazing things, and the, the the diversity and the crazy stuff they try, it just explodes. So, like, they're exciting times post-extinction, however long it takes to to get to the other side of those things. But, yeah, they're, they're a real bummer for everybody, for 95% of everything else, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, you just got to hope that you are holding the right hand mm-hmm. when the rules of the game change, and yeah. all of a sudden you can find yourself, you know, either losing, dying out, or just holding on to a winning hand, you never know. So like, with the Carboniferous Permian rainforest collapse, the reptiles were wonderfully well adapted to take advantage of the aridification that mm-hmm. was happening, uh, because they weren't so attached to freshwater and wet ecosystems, so mm-hmm. they could go on to inherit the new vacant eco space. And so it's it's interesting all of the mass extinctions that we have have shaped life going on to the, the very present day. Oh yeah. So I find it really interesting that we can look at what we have today and think, yeah, that's that's normal. This these are lineages that led to, you know, what obviously was the obvious end point, which is us. Mm. Where in actual fact if you go at it from the opposite way, if you start wherever, you have a mass extinction. It kind of rolls the dice. You you don't actually know where you're going. What we have today is just chance. Yeah. That it's us as the dominant life on the planet and not, say, some group of social insects or something like that. <laughs> oh, who knows
0: what life could have been? Well, they'll have their time, maybe in 100 million years. Who knows what's going to come yeah, up? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Time I is just a number, man. I think we're rolling the dice right now. <laughs> Yeah, tell me about it. Um, It seems uh, statistically unlikely that people will know you from an oil rig itself, but it's more likely that people will have uh, come across you as the host of the the PaleoCast podcast, which is awesome, I was telling you before. You mentioned, and you won't be the first person that kind of started a, a podcast out of spite, but uh, the rumor was that um, you launched it because paleontology wasn't being done any justice in the media, and you wanted to offer a, a new piece of media that was starting to show paleontology in its true light. What were, I guess, your reasons or the impetus behind launching the PaleoCast?
1: Yeah, um, where on earth did you find that? That, that was exactly what happened. <laughs> I don't know where I've written that or spoken about it, but your research is spot on and also terrifying. <laughs> as you can see into my head. Uh, so I was doing biostratigraphy, which if people don't know, is essentially helping oil rigs uh, be more efficient and safer when they're looking for oil by using uh, microfossils in their geological interpretations of rocks and stuff. And it gives them mm-hmm. a lot uh, more of a solid control over what they think they're drilling through, et cetera, et cetera. It helps them find it in future. helps them... All be a lot safer which is uh, nice despite us destroying the planet so when you're doing that you've got a lot of uh, microscope time and I spent a lot of time just listening to podcasts science ones and whenever something came up in one of those about paleontology I was just like yes 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 I want to know everything about it and Mm -hmm. it was always just the same you know questions from someone that doesn't really know anything about paleontology, mm-hmm. and they never did it justice, and so I was just thinking like, yeah, why not me? what why don't I fill in that niche? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I tried and spectacularly <laughs> failed, so I was there, and I tried to sit down with one of my friends to record something speaking authoritatively about a paleontological topic i had an msc in paleontology and we started talking and i just realized i can't actually talk about anything because i don't know it in enough detail that i can come across as having any sort of authority because mm-hmm. uh, you're always cautious as a paleontologist as a scientist mm-hmm. to not say anything that isn't true i couldn't just speculate wildly and so that's how our interview format got started. I was just like I can't do this myself. I'm just going to talk to one of my friends mm-hmm. uh, about their research and so that's how the format got set. And it was it was just very organic. Like I never had any intention of the podcast being what it is today. It just
0: evolved that way itself kind of fitting and you've had incredible guests and you've had incredible subject matter and like i said it uh it's so fascinating like you just get such a wonderful i guess overview i mean it's only an hour right it's not like you're getting a a whole uh (laughs) accredited Mm. course or anything like that when you when you sit down but you get so many neat details about stuff that maybe you wouldn't have spent time listening or looking for but subscribing to that podcast you get you get to hear a lot of really really interesting stuff for sure it's been really good
1: yeah, make sure you subscribe, everyone. <laughs> uh, so the, the thing is that there's never been any like set format for choosing an episode. It's just what has caught my attention. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, yeah, we'll do that. And the thing with paleontology is you're dealing essentially with all of life that is alive today mm-hmm. multiplied by history. You know, that's a lot of subjects. That's a lot of potential discussions Mm -hmm. that you could have. Oh, yeah. And there's so many, you know, everything that's extinct added into that as well, all the extinct groups that we don't have alive today. And then all of the methods behind it, all of the science that's peripheral to that. Like, how do you use UV fluorescence to see more details in some fossils? Mm -hmm. How do you use uh, the synchrotron or whatever? Like, (laughs) there's just essentially uh, an unlimited amount of number of stories that we can tell. So it's always exciting. And I I always learn something new and it's it's an absolute wonderful position to find yourself in where you can just have a conversation with anyone about anything and learn something amazing that you never would have conceived possible. Aquatic
0: sloths, (laughs) come on, what were they doing? they were apparently swimming yeah <laughs> uh, yeah a long way right how how would how would the
1: aquatic sloth future have looked if evolution had just been a little
0: kinder to them mm mm-hmm. just they could have had this sloth atlantis maybe they will get their anyway, second chance uh, in 100 million years as well or maybe 200 let's, million let's years. hope yeah <laughs> well you kind of get if into anyone the... has a sloth on them just chuck
1: it in just keep throwing it into the sea mm hmm We'll eventually get there.
0: will get there. Yeah, it's like teaching poodles to fly. Um, <laughs> yeah, that as well. <laughs> they'll, they'll they'll take flight sooner or later. You kind of touched on this already, but I, I, I'm curious what has been, I guess, one of the most rewarding parts of producing the podcast. It's almost been ten years you're telling me. What's been, I guess, the greatest reward from from producing the podcast for you?
1: That is a good question. <laughs> I haven't really considered it in terms of reward for me, it's just something I am for some unknown, unexplicable reason (laughs) compelled to do. I like people enjoying it, and so that's always nice to see when people are engaging with it. I like having something I produced nine years ago or something crop up with a comment somewhere, someone's. obviously still listening to it saying oh wow, uh, this, that or the other Um, but generally for me personally, I, I guess it's the willingness of the participants to talk to me and to the audience as well and just really getting to hear what they have to say and seeing the paleontological world through their eyes and their experiences and all of the Weird, unique, wonderful
0: bits of information that they have, mm-hmm. and so you're mentioning too that you've got to work on on documentaries as well with uh, with this like paleontological focus uh, or consultancy. What sort of documentaries are you working on, and what what kind of contributions do you make when uh, when you're consulting for 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 a documentary?
1: Yeah, I do. I do loads of things. Yeah, like I've got so many little projects going on. Uh, but with the documentaries that's a you know such a wonderful job um, so thinking of watching Attenborough documentaries when I was little mm-hmm. and now working on those kinds of documentaries it's it's brilliant to see how they're produced and yeah contribute my knowledge to the story and help shape what People are going to see and enjoy in the same way that I saw and enjoyed those kinds of documentaries when I was little. I've been working on two major ones that I can't tell you about because they're not out (laughs) yet, but they will be out at some point soon and they should be uh, pretty big. We're not talking possibly the same scale as prehistoric planets in Mm. terms of, you know, like how much money they threw at. promoting that, Mm -hmm. you you know, you saw it everywhere, Mm -hmm. but they will be major, you know, like headline documentaries.
0: That's really exciting.
1: So that's cool. And like my involvement in them has ranged from coming up with the, the concept of, you know, like what will this documentary be about? What kinds of stories can we tell? What kinds of stories must we tell when we're talking about the fossil record and prehistoric life and then going from finding the stories to um, actually creating the the models of the animals like where does this bump where does this ridge where does this uh, feather or um, bit of hair go like that so mostly like obviously my skill set is with invertebrates and older stuff but then i've been involved across the board uh but will never just come up with it myself it's 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 a lot of networking and speaking to the right scientists and professionals Mm -hmm. which feeds into what i've done with paleocast i can like reach into the network and be like oh you're the woman (laughs) who knows everything about where feathers go or you're the guy who Mm -hmm. knows about the biomechanics and how fast this thing could run
0: advising on like whether a a, an aquatic sloth did the breaststroke or a doggy paddle right exactly you gotta pick one or the other it can't do well maybe you could do both (laughs) (laughs) Who (laughs) knows? these are important questions we need answers to entirely yeah so through these productions and uh in this networking i understand that you've been affected by the impact that Jurassic Park the film has had and the franchise has had on on <laughs> on the production of, of different shows and of course uh, you see them in a lot of ways uh, you when you agreed to join me you're like warning I don't really care for the movies uh, how, how have mm-hmm. you seen that Jurassic Park has begun to affect or has affected for, for you know decades the popular discourse on on dinosaurs and paleontology so- in particular Yeah,
1: first I would caveat everything by saying that as an invertebrate worker, Mm -hmm. uh, well, I guess as a paleontologist, I have a unique entry into paleontology because I never cared about it whatsoever when I was little. I wouldn't... Whilst whilst I am a paleontologist, Mm -hmm. I I have never been a fan of paleontology, which is a, a, a real unique thing. Everyone that comes on my show... The least is like oh i've loved paleontology since I was five and i found my first fossil or more and more i love paleontology since i watched jurassic park mm-hmm. for me i was you know i wasn't a paleontologist i was a tech nerd and computer gamer skateboarder and i would still probably consider myself that more i do more <laughs> gaming than i do paleontology that's for sure but anyway um coming into the paleontology as as just something that you know kind of made sense to me and it was better than getting a job you know staying in university you could just chill out do more skateboarding and gaming uh, whilst wasting time getting a pretty shabby degree <laughs> in geology so I became a paleontologist that's just what made most sense to me logically I could get a grasp of the subject and then I fell in love with it and fell in love with the organisms Mm -hmm. and really got to understand the science. So there was never any love for paleontology there. There was never any love for the film when it came out. So when that came out, I was, I can't remember like nine or something. When did, when did it come out? In 93. 93. So I would have been eight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Didn't care about it (laughs) at all. Like I, I saw it in the cinema and I think I experienced it in a way that they would have want their audience to experience mm-hmm. it. It was my first exposure to dinosaurs as you know an individual as, as seeing them as portrayed as you know living things rather than just plastic toys or in a book mm-hmm. that I didn't really care about. I knew I knew what dinosaurs were, of course, but there was never any. Love for them or whatever, and the film didn't change that. <laughs> to me, it was just a, a monster film, well, a dinosaur film, whatever. You know, it was it was fine. I I enjoyed it. I didn't hate it. But there we go. That that was my dealing with Jurassic Park. It was done and dusted mm-hmm. over. And so then, being a paleontologist, well, becoming a paleontologist. Jurassic Park two and three had come out, and I'd not cared about them whatsoever but then you start to see the effects that jurassic park has and th- how it permeates through the whole field mm-hmm. i would say almost cancerous but i think that that's quite a, quite a criticism probably <laughs> one that's unjust so it crops up everywhere yeah and from being in the phd offices and half the people are coming in in jurassic park t-shirts and i'm just like oh whatever <laughs> or, or the new intake of msc students come in and every single one of them's like i want to do a project on dinosaurs 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 mm-hmm. and all you hear is dinosaurs and i'm so sick of dinosaurs and i've never cared for them and i probably <laughs> never will um but then the problems come when you get this self-perpetuating dinomania, where the public are presented with just dinosaurs so i used to work in the university of bristol's press office as oh, well no. whilst there was a... <laughs> okay and i'd be writing the press releases for paleontological stuff mm-hmm. and working with the head of communications and whatnot and dinosaurs sell and sex cells The oldest cells, the biggest cells, Mm -hmm. and the interesting and the important stuff that doesn't sell, because the public wants or know of dinosaurs and they're impressive. They will catch attention, whereas if you're talking about uh, whether or not tinafores or sponges are the sister group to the rest of the animals, Mm -hmm. like that is fundamental for everything, but then nobody understands what that really means unless you've got your head into it already and so if you look at things in terms of delivering paleontological stuff that the public will engage with you're constrained by dinosaurs and i would link that all the way back to the effect of the success of
0: jurassic park Mm -hmm. and i hate it So, from your perspective, like, you're right, the, the, the dinosaurs, I think even museums set up, like, you got to have your T-Rex in the lobby, and then that's how mm. you get people in the door, and then you can show them the rest of the museum once they're there. But you gotta, you got to get them in the door, and you got to have the T-Rex, or else uh, they aren't coming. <sighs> I mean, T-Rex is awesome, but, uh... <laughs> Why? Well, he's got biggest teeth, and he's got the biggest head, and he's, he's impressive, for sure.
1: And it's a really... Okay, tell me something that's not the biggest that makes it interesting?
0: Um, I think they've discovered that its vision was extraordinary and they said that it can, it didn't really run but it, it like stalked after things <laughs> like from a long ways away. So okay, so,
1: so we've got, it's got good vision yeah. and it didn't run.
0: Well, I don't know, if you were to imagine like a an eight ton eagle, I think it's pretty intimidating in that respect.
1: And you're back onto size. Hmm. Yeah, I, I it would be intimidating, and yeah, it does have that going for it. But beyond that, the only reason why it's impressive is
0: because it's the the biggest. Mm-hmm. Well, I predator, guess they're hard to a, a group of big reptiles. I think in a way that, like, uh, because we cannot see each other, um, we can let our imagination envision whom we might be on the other side of this call. And I think uh, in the same way, when you read a novel, that it's not visually given to you. You need to imagine it. I think, too, that there's... Your imagination fills in the gaps in a way that either you like or you don't like. And I suppose um, there's a big part of that... I guess you say it's romanticizing it, but... I'm sure you're absolutely right that in and of itself it's just an animal, but you can imbue quite a bit of uh, your your own, uh, I guess, bias into envisioning it, for sure. I think you're right about that. But I still think it's cool. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not to say that Maybe other things are. It's all- just a reflection of me. That could be as well.
1: Yeah. Anyway, what were we talking about? Well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you've just seen that um, you've seen that Jurassic Park has really inseminated uh, an entire generation. Of, of science workers and things like mm. that, and what other ways? Like when you're working on a, you say you're doing the public, the press releases or things like that. Like what other parts of this this film have affected your your day to day when it comes to like talking about science and things like that? When you when you're speaking with people, like how does what's a common interaction with, where, where Jurassic Park kind of like affects how things work for you?
1: Um, well, it's it's on multiple different levels, mm-hmm. and it depends on which section of paleontology you're looking at so academically it's not the biggest influence and mm-hmm. we just kind of leave it to the side, everyone has apart from me, has some nostalgic love for the film and we can just get on, leave it to the side, that's fine but then sometimes you get these dino mega fanboys that and girls that only want to work on theropods and you're just like <laughs> ugh another one of you just yeah good luck with that enjoy (laughs) competing with 40 other of your peers for the one job that might turn up so it does it does have an impact on academia but not much in museology it has an impact because people are trying to predict what the public wants which again comes back to what the public has been exposed to and Mm -hmm. invariably Jurassic Park is the primary source of information about dinosaurs Mm -hmm. Uh, not anything educational uh, not, well possibly TV but it's never TV without Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is pretty much always there for anyone who's engaging with paleontology and it forms the initial frame of reference for any sort of engagement with paleontology so if i am telling someone about trilobites for example they would have to have that put in terms of whether or not it's before the dinosaurs or after the dinosaurs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, for instance when i'm working with these microfossils offshore i'm working with fossil plankton i'm doing foraminifera down the microscope And I'll get some meathead kind of oil, rough-tough oil rigger uh, from Norway come in and they're like, what are you doing? Who is this English man who's telling us how to run an oil rig by looking at fossils down a microscope? Don't understand any of it. Mm -hmm. They come in and they say, what are you looking at? Is it some kind of dinosaur? Okay. No, No, it's not a dinosaur down the microscope. Uh, But then that's how they understand paleontology Mm -hmm. they only understand that paleontology is dinosaurs and maybe that's part of the success and the appeal of dinosaurs uh, and the public enjoyment of that Mm -hmm. but then as i said a lot of that public enjoyment of the dinosaurs will be through jurassic park now it's just so omnipresent omnipotent it's just there for Mm -hmm. everyone and so, in the media, again, as I was saying, that is uh, the biggest the the sexiest, the dinosauriest things will get the headlines. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, and then it's always in terms of dinosaurs. So a uh, a story about ichthyosaurs will be like sort of pushed towards marine dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And that's how, you know, like the Chinese whisper of news stories will eventually end up like, cause I, I, I write it saying like a marine reptile that was alive at the time of the dinosaurs. And eventually that will work its way to the tabloids. And it'll be like marine dinosaur <laughs> is biggest ever. And you're just like, oh, come on. <laughs> and then in documentaries. So the thing to understand here is that. The documentaries that we all love, that we all enjoy, that we respect, are not educational, they are entertainment Mm -hmm. that uses an educational uh, vehicle, Uh, but they do not exist to tell us about stuff. Gone are the days when you could watch a documentary and they say, uh, what you're seeing here is this, that and that, this is what the science is. Because people apparently, or at least documentaries aren't set up to engage with pe- engage people with things that they don't know they're there to engage people with things that they want to see and want to be engaged with, mm-hmm. so you'll want to surprise your audience you'll want to um you know get them to watch to get them to engage to get them to have empathy with the characters because this is all in terms of characters it's not animals it's not uh taxa is characters the thing that you can't do is you can't challenge them you can't make them feel stupid you can't make them stop and think because as soon as you've done that they've lost interest mm-hmm. and they'll go to find something else so your documentary is set up in a way that you have to perpetually entertain your audience. And at the highest levels, these documentaries are produced by people who have also Jurassic Park as their sole point of reference, Mm -hmm. as their principal point of reference. And you always have to produce, try and produce a documentary that will entertain, that will inspire that will wonder the audience in the same way that Jurassic Park right. already has mm-hmm. apart from if you want your documentary or your new film or your new piece of entertainment you can't be like oh well we'll just make it like Jurassic Park but well, we won't go as far as what they've done mm-hmm. like we're not going to make T-Rex as aggressive it can you know like just chill out a bit and that's well, that's what i think you know prehistoric prehistoric planet has done pretty well it's shown these animals more as like living creatures and not like the movie monsters Mm -hmm. but the producers of a lot of media of all media pretty much that works with dinosaurs will have to compete against the public's perceptions of what dinosaurs are Mm -hmm. and against the entertainment factor that Jurassic Park brought to it. So you you're always going to have to have, you know, intelligent raptors. You're always going to have to have, you know, the the victorious, wonderful giant T-Rex and mm-hmm. the brave triceratops that has to be, you know, kind of like a heroic character. Mm-hmm. So you you have these caricatures of these dinosaurs that you have to try and fit in and you can't deviate from those either. Like Triceratops is your heroic character, you can't suddenly make Triceratops a a bad guy in that because that challenges people's perceptions mm-hmm. to look at them in a different way. You can't have Win Peter hmm So, ah, mm-hmm. oh, and I, and again, I I push this all back to Jurassic Park and say, <laughs> this is what you have done. This is the result of you having completely had the most successful paleontological film that will ever exist it has been such a success that it has fundamentally changed how the public will look at paleontology forever and that's a good thing in some ways of getting so many people interested in the field but also it has this Lingering, this lasting effect that is just so hard to overcome. Like if you try and go against it, whatever you produce is gonna fail. Really. Mm-hmm. So there you go. It's it's kind of cyclical You're in right. that respect. It's, it started off this cycle of dinosaurs are amazing and wonderful. Here are some dinosaurs that are amazing and wonderful. You want to make that even better so you've got to make them even bigger and scarier mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. whatever and it just keeps going around in that circle over That's a, and over.
0: an excellent point. And and if you're always trying to relate to that source material, you you're just going to be a facsimile of it. You know what I mean? Like your originality is not there, but you're also not going to live up to it because you probably don't have the the budget that Jurassic Park did to make it. So you you're you're, yeah. you're setting yourself up to be to already look and, and be less than than what it is as opposed to just being your own thing right so when you're advising when you're consulting on these things how do you resist or how do you how do you advocate against <laughs> some of these stereotypical preconceptions that people are just they feel they're compelled to insert into a, a paleontological documentary how do you how do you resist it as you're as you're working on it
1: okay so um, an example where I actually wrote a documentary it's it um... Started off like in where everything should start off in the Precambrian, mm-hmm. you know, talking about uh, multicellularity and the evolution of sex and whatnot. And I had episodes on plants, you know, a whole episode on plants, a whole episode on arthropods and their terrestrialization, and all of this wonderful stuff that all of this twisting narrative that fed back into self. oh it was glorious <laughs> and the the producers were like that is going in that's wonderful go away for a bit return to the production and it's just gutted and it's just all dinosaurs hmm. like there's there's nothing that i can really do to stop this <laughs> only to only to mitigate the worst of it yeah so i know a lot of people who would advise against working in documentaries uh as a scientist because whatever you say is going to be taken potentially out of context turned up to not even 11 turned up to 15 (laughs) or something and yeah so a lot of what i have to do in research is to find a middle ground Um, So I will go with, here are your facts. And they will come back and say, how far can we push these facts? Mm -hmm. Is it reasonable to suggest that, you know, it could be 15% bigger? And I would be like, well, the the biggest fossil that we have of whatever probably isn't the largest one that ever lived. So you could possibly (laughs) increase it by... A couple of percent or mm. something. I don't think that will be wrong per se, but we don't have evidence for it. And something that they do is they look for all of the gaps in which they can insert more stuff that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, could something that we see happening today? so say like a courtship dance or a bright colored spot or something like that, could this animal have done that? Is there any evidence to say that it couldn't? And so the documentary becomes framed in proving what couldn't theoretically have happened, not showing what did actually happen and what we actually have Mm -hmm. evidence of, So it's more like phylogenetic bracketing of possibilities. I see what, so, you,
0: I see what you're saying. It's like do, when your re-
1: audience know phylogenetic,
0: do your audience know
1: phylogenetic bracketing?
0: I would say that there's somebody who could use a f- refresher on it, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> okay, so um, let's look at my kid has got ginger hair. My great-great-granddad has got ginger hair. My dad, you could say in that instance, probably had ginger hair potentially Mm -hmm. like it wouldn't be a a stretch to say that that is in the realms of possibility and you can basically do that with animals and their characteristics
0: and when you were when you're talking about like um could an animal do this or what are the limits and things like that i think a good analogy is when you look at a person and you say well could this person also be i don't know setting an olympic record well i guess People have set Olympic records, but that's far from the common experience, right? We're not. It, it, should it, Should an animal theoretically have trained like an Olympian? Uh, then I suppose yes. The, the limits they could reach would be incredible, but um, that would be uncommon yeah. in nature. <laughs> not everybody can triple jump, you know, thirteen meters or something like that.
1: Oh, it's <laughs> a horrendous analogy, but let's roll with it. Like okay. imagine you're you're doing a film. And you're like, right, we need a character for this film. Well, here is Mike, our character, and he is uh, the Olympic record holder in powerlifting. He also is professor of blah, 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 and you just reel off uh, <laughs> all of the, the great achievements that humankind could have, and, and roll it all into this one super mega, awesome, interesting, all singing, all dancing character that is going to be super fun for all of the audience to watch. hmm <laughs> And I don't like Mike. I think Mike needs to take it down a notch. Yeah, he's I not want very... to see him sat on the sofa <laughs> eating pancakes and getting syrup all down him and
0: watching telly. That's the real Mike. That is the real Mike. <laughs> he's carb loading after the event. <laughs> <laughs> We're just about out of time here, but this has been really fascinating. I think it's been really interesting to look at at uh, at the science end of things and and how how Jurassic Park is it's, it's it's everywhere, and it's it's interesting to see how it how it affects things, not always in the positive way.
1: I think we should all go out um, with our copies of Jurassic Park, the DVD, mm-hmm. and burn them in a <laughs> big ritual burning, and I'll film it all, and it'll be wonderful and yeah let's let's do that
0: <laughs> well i'm gonna keep my copy of it so if people were looking to find what new projects you're working on, you had the virtual museum you were are you working on that stuff yes uh there's so
1: many different i'm just spread all over the internet if you look at anything to do with paleontology mm-hmm. online you will eventually find my tendrils infiltrating everything trying to make people pay attention to paleontology that isn't dinosaurs mm-hmm. so i have the paleontology podcast paleocast.com uh, we have a computer gaming wing of that which is the paleocast gaming network which is on youtube where we look at different computer games and uh the the fossils in them uh it's all jurassic park rick ripoffs.
0: Okay, I believe that. I believe that.
1: Terrible (laughs) dilophosaurs and stuff. Um, Then I have a project to make a digital museum with all of the virtual museums and digitized resources that already exist. So if you went to whatever Smithsonian website, they have a load of pictures of fossils on their website. Mm -hmm. But it is just a a catalog of here are some fossils that we have taken pictures of you can find them if you just search for the accession number and then scroll through all the different various uh, entries and you will find a picture or a video of something that we have made and i'm like that's rubbish Mm -hmm. like no one's gonna look at that let's put it back into a museum context but that museum is like pokemon and you run around it and look at all of these fossils on display and then get the information Mm -hmm. and so that is in production and it's been in production for way too long i need to finish it uh but that is going to be awesome when it comes out uh what else do i do um documentary stuff podcast computer gaming live streaming anywhere where there's some technological thing that i can do
0: to tell people about paleontology i will be there It's good where would you recommend people start if they were looking for for more information where where would people start paleocast.com paleocast.com All right right on with an A because I'm English yes you do have to add the extra A (laughs) well this has been wonderful I really really appreciate you coming on well thank you very much for having me I've had a lot of fun and I love I love your work man it's it's a a great podcast I enjoy it very much oh you (laughs) stop it All right, thank you to my very special guest, Dave Marshall. It's It was wonderful having him. He was a little reluctant to come on because he doesn't love Jurassic Park. And I wasn't sure that he would have much to say uh, on a podcast about Jurassic Park. Thanks to him for joining us because he, he obviously had a lot to share. This week's text is The Tour, spanning from pages 92 to 111. Although, like I said, we're breaking it up into a three-part mini-series. Characters, because this chapter is bigger than an Apatosaurus, we're going to only focus on a couple of the many characters in this chapter. This time, Regis, Nedry, Malcolm, Arnold, and Fellows. Ed Regis! We'll come to learn that Ed Regis despises leading this tour, but he does it with aplomb. So there's something to be said for his dutiful commitment to professionalism when taking on extra tasks outside the job description, like helicoptering dinosaur victims to the mainland. He's unhappy and impatiently tapping his foot because he's been asked to watch over Hammond's grandkids while they're visiting, which is not his job. On page 96, he feels degraded. Earlier, he is described as licking his lips when he was nervous, and now he's tapping his feet. He's squirmy and kinetic, and I wonder if there's meant to be any suggestion of substance abuse, maybe, here. Uh, He's not a babysitter nor a tour guide, but these are thrust upon him because Hammond wishes it so, on page 96. So, he feels like this is a waste of his time. He's head of public relations for Jurassic Park, and he's got a lot on his plate with the upcoming opening a year from now, including coordinating with firms in San Francisco, London, New York, and Tokyo. His job is difficult enough, too, because the dinosaurs are being kept a secret, and for the marketing agencies to do their best work, he was required to nurture their creativity. That's his strength. And Regis has been working on the island for the past seven months, and they keep pushing, quote, odd jobs on him, including dealing with the, quote, construction accident in, quote, January, on page 96. Regis calls the mauled workman sick again. And you can remember my complaint about sick and injured uh, way back when we first covered that story. That was in episode two of The Bite of the Raptor. You can check that out again if you wish. Regis assures everyone that the signage cautions against great danger, but they are just posted for legal reasons, and that, quote, everything is perfectly safe, he says on page 98. Regis defers leadership of the tour to Henry Wu once they reach the fertilization room, and he has to interrupt Grant from examining the Velociraptor, hoping to stop him from putting the infant in distress, on page 110. Grant won't listen, so Regis has to get firm with him. Perhaps dinosaurs get Grant acting a little adolescent as well? These animals are delicate and die from Postnatal Stress Syndrome, which is adrenocortically mediated, causing death within minutes. So I guess when uh, when its heart starts pumping, uh, they can be terminally affected when they're infants. Dennis Nedry. Tim's first impression of Nedry is he's a fat college kid who has something to do with computers. On page 93. Upon hearing about the nucleated red blood cell extractions, Tim thinks that Nedry looks uninterested, as if he knew all of this already, and was more interested in the NEXT room on page 100. He's described as the messy, fat man. And Wu knows Nedry by name, but perhaps doesn't know that Nedry built the programming system? Would Wu know who Nedry is? More importantly, Nedry is shown to be more interested in the powerful computers than in the extraction techniques. Nedry apparently had, quote, long ago concluded that InGen must be doing something like cloning dinosaurs. We're told on page 103. What? (laughs) Jeez, maybe this guy really should be working for Biosyn if he can figure that out. Well, he had some help figuring that out. A buddy of his, Barney Fellows. We get some of Nedry's backstory revealing that, quote, a couple years earlier, he was hired by InGen to, quote, design the park control systems. And the specs said that they needed, quote, 3 by 10 to the exponent 9 fields which is apparently a ludicrous amount, and he thought it was a mistake. But it was real, so they concluded that they must be cloning dinosaurs? Nedry has made a name for himself in building large systems and setting up worldwide telephone communications for multinational corporations on page 103, often with millions of records, but InGen's is much larger. It requires billions of records. Nedry must be a close friend or confidant of Barney Fellows. They share some sort of camaraderie from working in the same field, working on similar projects, and if Nedry's a world-renowned system designer, Fellows must be on par. He's working under a non-disclosure agreement on 104, we're told, but can say that it is a bioengineering firm. Nedry feels that analyzing an entire DNA molecule is a dubious idea because, quote, he knew biologists were talking about the Human Genome Project, to analyze a complete human DNA strand, but that would take 10 years of coordinated effort involving laboratories around the world. It was an enormous undertaking as big as the Manhattan Project, which made the atomic bomb. We're told on page 104. He designed the control systems with his programming team, taking more than a year to accomplish. But it was, quote, especially difficult because InGen wouldn't ever tell him what the subsystems were for. On page 104, we're told. He received design parameters, but no details about use. As a result, now that the system is up and running, it's no surprise that there are bugs in the programming. And now, InGen is, quote, hot and bothered about the bugs, and Nedry finds it, quote, annoying. On page 105. Later on, Nedry thinks the infant velociraptor looks like a lizard. On page 107. And when Wu says the baby raptors don't have teeth, even egg teeth, that perks up Nedry, who wonders about those. Which is kind of out of character for him, but that's what happens. On page 108. Ian Malcolm. Tim's first impression of Malcolm is he's a thin man in black who didn't shake hands but just nodded his head. This suggests everyone else did shake hands, even Nedry, but Malcolm did not. And that's a fun connection to our introduction to Malcolm, where he bucks social norms, actively doing something that others don't or would not, combating the givens in our behavior. I don't think he's being quirky or standoffish or resistant to children. He's actively performing contrarianism or something like that. When Dr. Wu reveals that they use amber, Malcolm is the first to catch on that it is from this that they acquire dinosaur blood samples, on page 99. When Malcolm hears about the redundancy systems and irradiation techniques for dealing with dinosaur mating, he pursues further clarification, on page 108 and 109. He argues that irradiation is, quote, fraught with uncertainty due to improper dosage, insufficient targeting, and more. Then, probably the greatest line from the novel or movie comes next. Quote, And as for them all being female, is that checked? Does anyone go and uh, lift up the dinosaur skirts to have a look? I mean, how does one determine the sex of a dinosaur anyway? On page 109. Genius. This is just flippant enough that it begins to eat away at woo. John Arnold. John Arnold is the chief engineer at Jurassic Park. A tall, thin man in a button-down short-sleeved shirt and tie, smoking a cigarette. On page 98. Yes, a second character named John. Smooth Michael Crichton, nobody's going to have trouble with that. Spielberg said, nope, and he changed his name to Ray Arnold because there's absolutely no reason on an island with only 20 people that you made up that there needs to be two guys named John. That's goofy. Barney Fellows. Barney Fellows is a colleague of Dennis Nedry, we're told on page 103, who works at Symbolics near the MIT campus in Cambridge. He must be a close friend or confidant of Nedry's, presumably on par with Nedry's status as a world-renowned system designer. He concedes a system with a billion fields is too big because even with, quote, the fastest processors and blindingly fast algorithms, a search would still take days, maybe weeks, we're told on page 103. Or in other words, it's just too big to function. He is familiar with working under nondisclosure agreements, we're told on page 104, and apparently with bioengineering firms enough to know that they could be analyzing DNA molecules. Localities, we have the control room. This looks like a smaller version of mission control, we're told on page ninety eight. A room surrounded by windows from the hall, and I suppose looking outside too. A vertical glass see-through map of the park, a bank of glowing computer consoles, screens displaying data, and video images from around the park. And there are just two people inside working, John Arnold and Robert Maldoon. The extractions room. This door opens with a security card, like all the doors in the laboratory building, we're told on page 98, is bathed in a green light, with four technicians in lab coats looking down double-barreled stereo microscopes, or looking at images on high-resolution video screens. The room is filled with amber, in glass shelves and cardboard boxes, large pull-out trays and each is tagged and numbered in black ink. And the researchers are likely looking at insects in the amber with the microscopes. We have the Gene Sequencing Room. Powerful computers run in a chilled room, we're told on page 100, like a high-tech laundromat, where two six-foot-tall round towers stand in the center, and along the walls are rows of waist-high stainless steel boxes, altogether omitting a loud humming. The boxes are the Hamachi Hood automated gene sequencers run by the high-speed Cray XMP supercomputers, we're told on page 100, which are the towers in the center of the room. There are also several monitors displaying where in the sequencing process the computers are at. And finally, we get symbolics near the MIT campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And this would be near Boston, in that collegiate area, like at Harvard, or something like that. We're told on page 103. We have allusions and references to real things in the real world to help us make more sense of what we're looking at. We have mission control, quote, that looked like a small version of mission control, we're told on page 98, says Crichton. Mission control refers to NASA's control room where they launch and control spacecraft. It resembles an auditorium lined with many desks and computers all facing the front of the room where there's a large series of screens reporting more data. And you can imagine everyone wearing collared shirts and headphones while they're nervously working. You can think of Houston from Apollo 13, starring Tom Hanks from 1995, and the Apollo 13 fiasco may be being alluded to here. NASA had a series of horrifying tragedies and critical failures in its early history. And recall the epigraphs where Erwin Chargaffs quote about you can stop visiting the moon, as mentioned in the pilot episode Epigraphs, which you can go back and listen to if you wish, uh, which suggests when the risks are too great, when human casualties are so high, you can just stop going to the moon, or you can end that risky behavior. But, as he continues to say, you cannot recall the new form of life. This is an illusion that carries with it a simultaneous warning that the risks are incredibly high in these highly scientific and overly ambitious scientific pursuits. Jurassic Park is no different than the Apollo 13 program. It's dangerous and risky. But the rewards are great. Thomas H. Loy. Loy's procedure is referenced. He, like my guest Phil Hoare from episode 18, Chateau, is from Canberra, Australia, and he developed a technique for lifting splotches of blood from stone tools and bones, and then extract bits of genetic material. This was a real guy who cut his teeth in 1983, studying 104 stone tools unearthed from British Columbia, Canadian content, (laughs) with blood samples on almost all of them from a variety of animals like black-tailed deer, moose, snowshoe rabbits, caribou, and grizzly bears, and some had human blood. So that's extracting DNA from old, old blood, but not from crushing up fossilized bones. Second, the artifacts were maxing out at 50,000 years old, but not 100 million years old. So, like, Lois procedure sounds like something that's applicable here, but it's another example of Crichton name-dropping something that isn't real. But it sounds real, because it's based on something real, and so we blow right on past it, but believe in it anyhow. The Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project is the codename for an intensive and costly research effort during World War II that resulted in the development of atomic weapons. This resulted in the bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which led to the end of the war. It was world-changing and is one of the major scientific advances that Crichton alludes to in the introduction, when he refers to humanity entering into the Atomic Age, quote, through the work of a single research institution at Los Alamos. The Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project is an enormous undertaking, we're told. In the late 1980s, this project wasn't yet a formal thing. It was something, quote, biologists were talking about, and Nedry is apparently aware of that. Its aim is to analyze a complete human DNA strand, but is expected to take 10 years of coordinated effort, comparable to the Manhattan Project. Helotoxins call chickenoids beta alkaloids. To start, there are no, as far as I can tell, helotoxins, but there is the hemotoxin, which has an M in it. Hemotoxins destroy red blood cells, disrupt blood clotting, and cause organ degeneration and generalized tissue damage. Bad stuff to get on you. This is said to be very painful and causes permanent damage and in severe cases, death. You could lose a limb due to it if not treated immediately. Hemotoxins are found in venomous animals like vipers and spiders. It both helps kill the prey and aids in digestion, so I've read. So Crichton spelled hemotoxin wrong or made up a new poison that sounds like one you could find in venomous animals that does do what hemotoxins do. chickenoids are any of a group of compounds related to colchicine, which is extracted from plants and used to treat rheumatic complaints, and now generally used in treatment for gout. This is an oral medication where the risk of overdosing is severe. Common side effects are a sore tummy, but high doses can damage bone marrow, hair loss, anemia, and then inhibited mitosis, or severe body failures. You can easily overdose and die. It's dangerous and spelled correctly, so that's good too. Beta-alkaloids is some reference to alkaloids, which are naturally occurring organic compounds produced by many varied organisms that are used in medicine, having physical and psychological effects. And whatever a beta-alkaloid is, it isn't very common, nor commonly written about in the past 20 years. I found a reference to them on a law website, where lawyers are encouraged to prove closed head injuries in their clients by looking for beta-alkaloids, which apparently a lawyer's quote, expert on the stand, will testify, begin to form on and in the brain as a body's response to the injury to the brain. Because there is no medical reference to be found on beta-alkaloids nor their presence in the event of brain injuries, I'm not sure what type of expert would testify to this other than fictitious cloning geneticist Dr. Henry Wu, I suppose. I found another healthcare website focusing on neurology, saying that examples of beta-alkaloids which are causing neurological tremors include harmine and harmine. So further down the rabbit hole we go, harmine is a beta-carboline And a Harmala alkaloid found in a variety of plants, which has been found to be relatively toxic to humans in doses above 3 milligrams per kilogram. Symptoms including behavioral changes in sleep, tremors, tummy trouble, nausea, and vomiting. Harmane is a chemical, but I can't make heads or tails of what it means. I think Crichton may have intended to reference beta carboline alkaloids, but missed one of the words. These are a general class of many types of alkaloids and synthetic compounds which can affect all sorts of things, but notably brain function and pharmacological effects. And note, the serena veriformins that Sattler identifies at poolside also contain a deadly beta-carboline alkaloid on page 85, so how do you like that? Are these great references to include in the novel? I'd say no. They aren't spelled correctly, and so referring them to any real harm is strained, but it certainly sounds significant but serves as just another example that it's much easier to gloss over Crichton's science because it sounds good than it's worth digging into what he's actually referencing. But this is just more world-building. In a world where these made-up clunkily-referenced poisons are in a lab, where a small dose of which can kill any living animal within a second or two, one boy who likes technical things will begin to lose interest. We have some more literary techniques. The metaphor, dinosaurs on the brain, we're told on page 94 and 95, gives us the impression that this is a constant, uninterrupted consideration in Tim's life. That he's always thinking of dinosaurs, and as a result, knows a lot about them as well. Similes. You have to watch my kids like a hawk. On page 96, says Hammond to Regis, transferring the qualities of a hawk's sense of vision, which is extraordinary, they have the ability to detect prey miles away, to Hammond's desired efforts from Regis, that he too should use extraordinary visual resources to oversee the safety of Hammond's grandkids. We'll rate this as a good simile, which is why it's probably a common turn of phrase. Quote, that looked like a small version of mission control. On page 98, says Crichton, Mission Control refers to NASA's control room where they launch and control spacecraft. It resembles an auditorium lined with many desks and computers all facing the front of the room where there's a large series of screens reporting more data. And you can imagine everyone wearing collar shirts and headphones while they're never working. Ultimately, it's to give us the impression of a highly computerized, scientifically advanced bank of data and operating equipment, not a crowded room. But it also transfers the quality of that tension often portrayed at mission control, as if billions of dollars and decades of work could spontaneously blow up in their faces. <laughs> a pretty good simile, I think. Quote, as big as the Manhattan Project, which made the atomic bomb on page 104. So how big was the Manhattan Project? It lasted four years, was a multinational endeavor between the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. It grew to employ 130,000 people, it cost nearly 2 billion U.S. dollars in 1939 dollars, which Wikipedia says is approximately 23 billion dollars in 2020 dollars, and research and production occurred at more than 30 sites across those three nations. So, like, by a variety of measures, that's comparatively big. That's a good good simile, I suppose. <laughs> Discussions! Let's talk about biohazards. Biological hazards come up, and they are important. Uh, On page 97, a sign says that this lab conforms to the USG-P4-EKG genetic protocols. Now, As far as I can figure, P4 and EK3 are containment level categories describing the laboratory's biosafety containment principles, technologies and practices in place to prevent the unintentional exposure of pathogens and toxins, or their accidental release. Remember, you cannot recall a new form of life from our pilot episodes and epigraphs. so This corridor is for authorized personnel, and this poster shows that the lab adheres to the USG's P4 and EK3 biosecurity, describing the Protection, Control, and Accountability for Valuable Biological Materials within the lab, in order to prevent their unauthorized access, loss, theft, misuse, diversion, or intentional release. This comes with a series of risk assessment factors, a hierarchy of controls and containment practices sort of like the ISO quality standards, but for internationally recognized biohazard containment. Then it shows what sorts of terrible things they're working with, specifically teratogenic substances here's a hot tip, do not google images of this, just don't, radioactive isotopes and carcinogenic potential. In all, it means they're working with serious stuff in this lab but they've been certified by the USG, which proves that they're taking things as seriously as is necessary. Elaborate security measures. We spoke earlier about Nedry having to beat elaborate security measures that protect the embryos. Well, here we get a taste of what that means. First, we're on an island where there are usually only about 20 people running the place, as referenced on page 98. So, like, you have to be vetted, and everybody likely knows who you are and where you probably should and shouldn't be when you're on the park. A.K.A. Nedry shouldn't be with the embryos. Wu shouldn't be out in the park. Regis shouldn't be in the nursery, etc. Second, this door should only open with a security card, even though it's not mentioned until the next scene, where Crichton says, quote, this door opens with a security card like all the doors in the laboratory building, on page 98. So let it be known, on the record, you need a designated clearance to enter the embryo area. Next, they enter into a lab, and there's an actual security guard stationed there, on page 98, on the other side of the door, to the control room, where the entire park is controlled from. However, despite all the secrecy and security to protect their intellectual property, Dr. Wu just tells everybody exactly how they do exactly what they do. Really, Nedry didn't have to do anything except take the tour! Like, this is considered proprietary information. This is their unique process by which they are able to perform their magic. And Wu is literally spilling the beans. The secret is out. Should anybody else want to do it, hey, here is the recipe. <sighs> it's crazy, right? The fertilization room explicitly requires a security card, we're told on page 105. Let's follow up on this concept that Regis is a liar or. Perhaps it's just wrong all the time, I don't know. Entering into the control center, there are signs warning against very serious toxins and poisons, but Regis says, never mind the signs, they're up for legal reasons. I can assure you everything is perfectly safe, we're told on page 98. And then they bypass a security guard. Those poisons and toxins are obviously unsafe, and there's a security guard there, securing them against something. So is it really safe? We don't pass any other security guards on the tour, and we visit the raptor pen in this scene. And knowing that there is a guard here inside the building, we have to wonder, why here? There are no guests, except for this one special visit this weekend. There's nothing for the guard to be doing unless he's either keeping people in or he's keeping people out. Therefore, is he keeping people working at gunpoint? No, not likely. Of the 20 people on the island working, are so many trying to gain access that he has to be posted there? No, that doesn't make any sense either. So why is he there? And the answer has to be, It has to be. Either a contrivance of Crichton, and he's just there to illustrate that the security is important, or or animals have gotten loose. And the only way people in this lab, on the second floor of the visitor center, feel safe while they're working behind closed doors is to have a guard on sentry duty. And I believe this because I continue to believe that Ed Regis is a liar, that he's always hiding the truth, and this is no exception. Plus, if all these poisons and toxins were stored as carefully as the signage indicates, can Grant just gain access to loads of these poisons to attack the raptors in the end with only the press of a button on page 355? Probably not. Timeline! We learn in this chapter that Ed Regis joined Jurassic Park seven months ago, on page 96, which if this is in the eighth month, August, then seven months before is the first month of the year, January. The very next sentence, Regis recalls the episode back in January, when that worker died of the backhoe accident from episode two, The Bite of the Raptor. Would that have been while he was on his first week on the job? That's crazy, right? And as well, Dr. Wu tells us that they've been extracting DNA from insects in amber for five years now. That makes it since 1984. Well, this is the first installment in the three-part series of The Tour. Thanks to my guest today, Dave Marshall, who knowing his strong distaste for Jurassic Park may not make it all the way through this episode, but I'd like to thank him if he lasts it out, that all the junk science and spoofs in the source material bring him a little extra ammo for his reasons for disliking the franchise. I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me I'm at Rogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line, and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. This episode, we did a lot of tearing down. Jurassic Podcast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages. Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the second-lapse graphic novelettes, The Infantry, and the worst of them all, The King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. Or me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you, dearly, for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that Next time sacrifice to the inhuman creature darkness spreads across the land a thousand years unending